church again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing through our study in the book of Revelation, and we are in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these guys will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get you one. If you don't own one, consider this a gift for you. Don't let them charge you for it. (laughs) It's an old joke. I use it every now and then. Revelation chapter 1, last book of your Bible. Starting in verse 9. I don't hear pages turning, so you must be there already. John writes, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, and white as, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth one a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And out of the keys of Hades and of death, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The title of my message this morning is A Portrait of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for bringing us together this morning, and this opportunity that you've given to us, to have your Holy Spirit work in our lives, to give us not only understanding of your word, but application in our lives. Lord, that we can read about who you really are and what you really have come to do. Father, we ask that you would bless our time together. We pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again. Lord, would you especially touch their life today, that they would see their need for you, and turn to you in faith. Thank you for this time together. We ask that you would bless it. We ask your blessing upon our children downstairs as they're being ministered to and taught your word at the same time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine walking into an art gallery and seeing this uh, uh, sculpture by a famous artist lying underneath this huge canvas. And at the appropriate moment, the curator of the of the art gallery, 
grabs a hold of that canvas, rips off the fabric, revealing the, the beauty and the genius of the sculptor's work. This is the revelation. Jesus Christ is alive and well, but we don't see his excellence, for he's hidden behind that heavy canvas, if you will, that separates the spiritual realm from the tangible world. Yet in Revelation, John rips away that veil and he reveals Jesus in all of his splendor. Now, throughout the centuries, there have been those that have sought to, uh, you know, portray Jesus in a way that fits the, the culture and the ethnic and the background at that time. You know, today, and I'm sure you've seen it, we have what I like to call the surfer Jesus. You know, it's kind of the long, flowing blonde hair, the light-colored skin, and it's like, you know, you expect him to have a surfboard next to himself. Then, and maybe you've seen this, they have the black Jesus, and it fits the culture. They have the, the Roman Catholic Jesus. Or then they make a picture of Jesus, he kind of looks sickly and real anemic, you know, like that. Then there's a, a DVD of the Gospel of Matthew that I like to call the happy Jesus. Uh, because Jesus is portrayed as having fun with his disciples. I picture him to be that way. I like that one the best. And finally, one that so-called experts say Jesus might have actually looked like, according to what the Jewish males looked like at that time. But all of these, they're just renditions of what the artist thinks Jesus might have looked like. But the Bible never describes Jesus' physical appearance because God knew that man would worship the image rather than worshiping his son. But the closest thing that we have to the description of Jesus is found from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3, where it says, For she shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, with that said, there's been also artists over the years that have attempted to draw a picture of Jesus based off of his description here in Revelation chapter 1. And it's turned out to be quite scary looking with the hair of wool, eyes of fire, swords coming out of his mouth. I'm not even going to try and show you an example of that. Because what we need to understand is that the description here is meant as a way to show us the attributes of of Jesus, not what Jesus looks like physically. And in the process, it helps us to draw closer to him and our relationship with him because of who he is and not what he looked like. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, and I encourage that you do, we're going to look at three things in this section of Scripture. Number one, the artist. Number two, the audience. And number three, the author. First and foremost, we have the artist. Look at verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's really interesting to me how John identifies himself here. He doesn't depict himself as an apostle or as an eyewitness of Jesus, but merely as a brother or as a partner with all of those other believers. Now, John, we know, is on, a, is on the small island of Patmos, which is kind of like Alcatraz Island of the Roman Empire. It was a rocky, desolate island, about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. 
prisoners were sent there to quarry the marble that was on there that was abundant there. John had been banished there because tradition says that after they, they, they tried to boil him in oil, he wouldn't boil, so they sent him to the island. I would imagine that was quite a sight to see. You know, they got this, this vat of boiling oil, it's heating up, it's scalding, and either they toss John in it, or they take it and they throw it on him, and he just kind of stands there or sits there and goes, oh, nice little warm bath. Nothing happens. You know, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in the fiery furnace. We sang about it this morning, which says the smell of fire was not even on their clothing. Why? Well, because God doesn't like his servants medium rare. He wants them well done. He even says, though, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Here's the deal. God wasn't done with John quite yet, and there was more work for him to do, so he wasn't about to boil in oil. In the same way, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. As Christians, God keeps us around on this earth because he has a plan and he has a purpose. He desires not only to continue to reveal himself to you, but for you and I to reveal himself to others around us. Then finally, when our work is done, not a minute too soon, not a minute too late, he will take us home. Well, here in verse 9, John could have said, this is the Apostle John, the guy who outran Peter to the tomb. The guy who not only wrote a gospel, but also wrote not one, not two, but three letters. And now I'm writing this one. He could have said, this is John, the guy, the only apostle who was right there at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. No, John chooses to describe himself in verse 9 as a brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. See, John, as an artist, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing to a people who are watching their children die. He's writing to husbands who were seeing their wives dragged off and brutally murdered. He was writing to men and women who were under intense persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, John didn't boil in oil, but others did. Yes, John was not beheaded for his faith, but others were. Peter had long since gone. Tradition has it that he was crucified upside down because he felt he was unworthy to be put to death the same way his Lord and Savior was put to death. John was the last of the original twelve. And he's writing to a people who were being persecuted and killed for their faith. And the people are wondering, Lord, when will this end? When are you going to return? When is there going to be an end to all of this madness? I think how sad for us to complain about a little mask mandate in our community. Look at what these folks were going through. So John, here in the middle of his introduction, says, I understand what you're going through. I am a brother. I am a companion of your suffering. And the trials we're facing together for the kingdom of God, I can relate. Because the people that John was writing to, they weren't saying, hey, what can we learn about the latest, you know, thing about the mark of the beast? You know, what about, who do you think the Antichrist is? What about this one world monetary system? No, they were saying, what is going on? Why the persecution? Why aren't things working out? Is there any hope? Is Jesus really returning? Will justice be served? 
Yes, answers John, the artist. Yes, I want you to see the big picture and taste the reality of Jesus' soon return because then your heart will be stirred and your faith will be strengthened. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning. As we see this picture of Jesus, our hearts will be stirred and our faith will be strengthened. Well, look now, John goes on in verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So this was Sunday. Already the church was was meeting and living in in the wake of the resurrection. Jews held their services on Sabbath, on, on Saturday, but Christians met on the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose. Sunday was treated like a mini Easter. It's the Lord's Day. And John is saying that this was not a dream, but that he was actually supernaturally transported out of the material world, wide awake, not sleeping, to an experience beyond normal senses. In other words, the Holy Spirit empowered his senses to perceive this revelation from God. Let me ask you this morning, are you in the Spirit on the Lord's day? Do you allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to receive a revelation from God as you enter into this place of worship? Now for some, I know a spiritual transformation takes place as we pull into the parking lot on Sunday mornings. I've seen it, I've experienced it. The husband and wife may be fighting and arguing all along the way until you pull up in that parking lot and a transformation takes place. (laughs) Smiling, waving, how I great, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, good to see you. Transformation has taken place. Suddenly, you're in the Spirit. Listen, Paul says if we we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If I'm walking in the Spirit, yielding my life to the Holy Spirit, then the result will be fruit in my life, lasting fruit. So here was John transported by the Spirit into the Spirit world on Sunday, and he catches a vision of the Lord and his plan for the future. And John goes on in verse 10 to say, And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now trumpets, we know, were used significantly in those times to wake people up. They were used as a, as a call to battle. A call to wake up. A call to pay attention. Now understand this. John had not heard Jesus' voice in some 60 years. But this time, the voice that he heard was much different than the one he had listened to and followed some 60 years earlier. There's a sense of urgency in this voice that commanded John's attention. And John did the right thing. He heard the voice and he turns to see what he would see. It was a wake-up call for him. Folks, let me say this. I would say this whole coronavirus thing is a wake-up call for the church. It's a wake-up call for us as believers. There are things going on behind the scenes right now that are all pointing to the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago about how the handwriting is on the wall. Signs that you would see that you would point to the fact that we are living in the last days. Signs that were leading to a one-world government. Signs that are leading to a cashless society. You know, there are those today saying we have a coin shortage. You know, places where, where money is, paper money is no longer being accepted. It's a wake-up call. I don't believe for an instant there's a coin shortage. Come to my house and my, my sofa. You'll find all the coins you need. But listen, folks. Persecution is coming against the church and in America like we've never experienced it before. I don't know if you caught this, but Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley, in just south of Reno, I believe it is, Nevada, took the governor to court 
for allowing casinos to stay open with thousands of people coming in and out of them, but limiting the number of church attendees to 50. Now, you would think, I would have thought that that would be a no-brainer. Of course, there's the First Amendment. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. Calvary lost in a 5-4 to four decision. Remember that come election in November. Four brave justices dis- dissented from this ridiculous decision, siding with Calvary Chapel. They included Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh. And I like what Justice Alito said. He was absolutely right when he wrote this. The Constitution guarantees the free exercise of religion. It says nothing about the freedom to play craps or blackjack or feed tokens into a slot machine. And then, uh, likewise, Justice Gorsuch was dead on correct when he wrote this. The world we inhabit today, with the pandemic upon us, poses unusual challenges. But there is no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. Say amen to that. And there's a, an appeal in process, and so we'll see what happens. But it's only going to get worse. Again, things going on behind the scenes that are pointing to the fact that Jesus' return is, is near. It's a wake-up call. I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The lawlessness that we see in our land today. This morning headline. I turned on my computer this morning. says, American mayhem. More rioting and lawlessness in cities across the U.S. And it goes on to say about just last night. Saturday was another night of rioting and lawlessness in a number of cities across the U.S. The evening's mayhem which spilled over into Sunday morning in many instances, included damage to federal buildings and local police precincts and even included a fatal shooting in Austin, Texas. Things are going on behind the scenes. It's a wake-up call. Take, for example, the latest figures that show that there were 10,949 cases of human sex trafficking reported to the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline. These cases involved 23,078 individual survivors, nearly 5,859 potential traffickers, and 1,905 trafficking businesses. Human trafficking is notoriously underreported, and it's only getting worse. I read an article that said human trafficking is estimated to bring in global profits of about $150 billion a year, $99 billion from sexual exploitation. You know, Jesus said that the climate uh, of the time prior to his return would be similar to the climate uh, during the days of Noah, Noah's life. In Noah's day, two sins were predominant, excessive violence and sexual perversion. Genesis 6, verse 5, speaking of that time, says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Listen, it's a wake-up call for all of us. We have friends, we have families that do not know the Lord Jesus and we need to not slow down but to continue to pull out all the stops in evangelism because that trumpet is about to blow. And many have responded like John to the trumpet blast by turning to the Lord and making sure their hearts are right with Him. And if you haven't done that this morning, I encourage you to do that. But there's so much work for us as believers to do. So number one, point number one, we have the artist, a brother and a companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second point, the audience. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it 
to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, this is the second time that Jesus himself describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Remember, we looked at this last week, uh, the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. By claiming the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus wants us to know that he has everything we need in this life. We don't need to turn to anyone or anything else for help. No alcohol, no drugs, no porn, not even religion, but a relationship with Him, not even our bank account. He's everything we need. He's the great I Am. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The complete, unchangeable God, the Almighty, the all-powerful God. There is none like our God. As well as for the second time in this introduction of the book, we find that the audience that Jesus, that John is writing for, consists of seven specific churches in an area at that time known as Asia, which in our day and age is present-day Western Turkey. Now we'll see this as we get into chapters 2 and chapters 3, that there are seven specific churches in Asia, but they also represent seven specific church ages throughout history, as well as they represent seven stages that we find ourselves in personally with our relationship with Jesus Christ. This brings us to our last and final point that we're going to camp out on, and that is the true author and finisher of our faith, Jesus himself. Number three, the author. We see here now Jesus as he truly is. Look at verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now we see here as John turns to see the voice that is speaking to him, the first thing that he sees is one like the Son of Man walking among the seven lampstands. Now we don't have to guess who John sees here. That's Jesus. And according to verse 13, he's in the midst of the seven lampstands. And the lampstands, we're told in verse 20, are the seven churches. In fact, look, drop down to verse 20. It's explained there, Jesus says that the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, they are seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. That's a very appropriate description of a church. Why? Well, because a, a lampstand's job is to give off light. That's the role of the church, we're to give off light in this dark world. Church is not a, a building where you put a big old spotlight on the roof and shine it all around. Church is made up of individual believers so that our role is to reflect the light of Jesus into this dark world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then he goes on to say in Matthew five fourteen to 16, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So you see, whether you like it or not, God calls us to be a light. The question is, what kind of light are you giving out? 
Are you like one of those old dimmer switches on your light? I recently installed a dimmer switch in my house. For some reason, you know, you turn off the power and I plugged it all in and I, it was upside down. So I thought, okay, that's not right. So I go back, turn it right side up, and it's one of those that's got the switch and it's got a little slider right next to it. Well, I got the switch so it goes up and down. So that works on and off, you know. But then when I slide the slider down, the light gets brighter and I slide it up, it gets darker. I, I don't know what I did wrong, but I'm not changing it now. It works. It's all fizzled out and burned. I don't know. But dimmer switches, they're like sin in our lives or like our flesh. The more we give into it, the dimmer our lights get. But that's just the opposite of what happens when we're walking in the spirit. The spirit is power. And, and when we crank up our life by living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, power cranks up, and that cranks up the light. Another way of looking at it, and I'm sure you've heard this analogy before, you know, our light is like the moon. The moon only reflects the light given off from the sun. So we reflect the light of Christ. We have no glory of our own. What is reflected of our lives is Jesus. And that's what we live for, to bask in, in His glory to reflect Him, to bring it to the world around us, not for our own sake, but for the praise of His glory. Now, I love this picture in this portrait of Jesus here in verse 13, where it says that He's in the midst of the seven lampstands as one like the Son of Man. No doubt this is a reference, if you go all the way back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It says there in Daniel, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, Daniel says, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. In fact, Jesus actually applied that same passage in Daniel to himself. In Matthew twenty six sixty three, at his trial, the high priest asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you by the living God was a command, a mandate to, to do this. He had to answer Jesus answered by quoting this passage from Daniel. It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's like a mic drop point right there. And the priest knew that Jesus made himself the Son of Man from Daniel. That's why the high priest tore his clothes and said, He's spoken blasphemy. But it was true. And notice where Jesus is. Look at verse 13 again. He's in the midst of the churches, the seven lampstands. It's a place that Jesus loves to be. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, that's not just a verse to quote when you only have one or two people show up at church. Oh, just two or three, but Jesus is here. As if there's only one person, then Jesus wouldn't be here. That's not how it works. That verse, once again, is to show us that Jesus is everything we need. Jesus uh, is in every situation we face. He is here. And how exciting it is to know that Jesus is here in our midst. That He hears every prayer. That He sees every act of kindness that you go out and do. And that He loves to hear the praises from His people. He's in the midst of His church. Why? Because He loves you so much. He can't take His eyes off of you. Now, that can be very sobering because as God sees everything, that means he sees everything, every need that gets ignored. He sees every opportunity to share the gospel that we've missed. He sees every opportunity to show the love of Christ to someone that we refuse to do that with. He hears every word of gossip that is spoken. 
He, he hears all the backbiting that has ever been uttered. Now I believe and I pray that our church is more like the first. God sees every act of kindness. He loves to hear the praises of His people. And I believe that it is to know that Jesus is here in our midst and He's blessed by what He sees. Because He is watching and He is listening and He's moving and He's working in this church in great ways. Now the next portrait of Jesus that John describes for us that we see are actually nine specific pieces of garments or attributes of our glorified Lord. And we're going to look at each one briefly. Look at verse 13. This is number one. We see that he is clothed with a garment down to his feet. So in John's description of Jesus, he sees Jesus wearing this long flowing robe all the way down to his feet. Now the robe speaks of, of majesty and the greatness of God. And I think about Isaiah chapter 6. You may be familiar with this verse when Isaiah got a glimpse of the Lord. It says there in verses 1 to 3, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And it goes on, And above it stood a seraphim, and one had six wings, and the two covered his face, and two covered his feet, and, and with two he flew, and one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now as a pastor, I've officiated many weddings here, and I've seen some really good-sized wedding trains out of these wedding dresses, but I've never seen one that filled the sanctuary. That would be huge. Imagine trying to straighten that out. But both John and Isaiah had this vision of the Lord in this long flowing robe, and wherever his one, his glory was felt, his majesty was seen. It reminds me of the, the ending scene of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the movie. And I love this ending scene that as Aslan, the, the lion, a picture of Christ walks towards his throne. There's a sense of awe and respect and fear and majesty. You can almost feel it. That's the picture that John sees here. Majesty and honor and respect and fear of the Lord. I think the church in general needs desperately to get back to that sense of awe and respect and fear of the Lord. Recognizing His holiness, His majesty as our King. Well, the second thing we see in this attribute, we see in verse 13, that he had girded about the chest with a golden band, or gold sash across his chest, a symbol of righteousness. Isaiah 11.5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. We move to verse 14, and number 3, His head and hair were like white, like wool, as white as snow. Some of us that our hair is turning that way, you're saying, yes, I knew I'd look like Jesus. More and more as the gray fills in. <laughs> Actually, white like wool and white as snow, it speaks of, of purity. Again, a reference from Isaiah, Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Fourth attribute we see, verse 14, and his eyes like a flame of fire. These, this speaks of eyes of judgment that are piercing, that are, are penetrating. Again, this speaks of how God is all-seeing, omnipresent. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of, to, of him to whom we must give an account. Think about his eyes like a flame of fire. It's amazing how, how fire can just you know, burn timber and, and, and brush, 
but also if, if hot enough, it, it can melt steel. And think about it, there's no hiding from the flame. It consumes everything. What John is showing us here is that Jesus can't be fooled. He knows each one of our, our thoughts, our intentions, our motives. Nothing again is hidden from his sight. In fact, in John 1.48, when Jesus called Nathaniel, Nathaniel asked Jesus, how do you know me? And, and Jesus answered and said, and before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Or the woman at the well after her encounter with Jesus in John 4.29, she said, come and see a man that told me things that I ever did. We're told in Exodus 24.17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And in Hebrews 12.29, for our God is a consuming fire. What a radical picture of our Lord here. For some, it can be absolutely terrifying. And for others, it can be quite comforting. It's terrifying if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, if you don't know if your sins are forgiven or not. It's frightening because one day you're going to have to stand before Him and to give an account for your life and you're going to be judged for your life. He has seen all in your life. You'll be without excuse. That can be very, very terrifying to the person who does not know Christ. But to the child of God, to the born-again Christian, this is very comforting. Because the Lord is a consuming fire, doesn't want you to burn up. His desire is not to fry you, but to consume your life so much that your life is going to shine brightly for Him. You know, a fire can be good or bad depending on your circumstances and your relationship to it. If you're trapped in your house and your house is on fire, that's terrifying. But if it's minus 7 degrees outside with a minus 20 windchill factor and you're sitting in front of a fireplace and blazing fire and it's warm and it's very comforting. So too, if you're right with the Lord, I mean, it, it, or rather if you're not right for, with the Lord and you're fooling around with sin and you're rebelling against God's commands, His eyes can be piercing, convicting. But if you know the Lord and are walking in fellowship with Him, those eyes are comforting and assuring and warm and welcoming and inviting. So number four. Number five, the fifth description here in verse 15, His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. These are the same feet that He allowed a Roman soldier to run a spike through to hang Him on the cross. Same feet that felt the bite of the serpent, but now has crushed the serpent and trampled his enemies. Again, this speaks of judgment. And I like what John MacArthur says. He puts it this way. Glowing hot, brass feet are a clear reference to divine judgment. Jesus Christ, with feet of judgment, is moving through his church to exercise his chastening authority upon sin. Next, verse 15, number 6. And his voice is the sound of many waters. Now, this isn't just a little... Sound is said like, you know, and his voice is sound of a babbling brook. No, that's calm and peaceful and quiet. This is the sound of a raging river. This is Niagara Falls type of sound. Could you imagine trying to argue with Niagara Falls? I mean, imagine standing at the foot of Niagara Falls with 12 million cubic feet of water roaring down each minute and you're trying to say something to your wife or to your husband. You can't. That's what John is describing here. Jesus' voice is like a mighty waterfall pouring out this thunderous sound with this deafening roar. John Phillips, in his commentary on Revelation, writes, One of the great mysteries of the present age is the silence of God. 
It is not the silence of indifference. It is the silence of the great sabbatic rest. It's just a time that he's silent. Psalm 29, verse 3 and 4 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, Silence of God, said this quote, and I think it's highly appropriate for what we're seeing today in our streets. He says this, When faith murmurs and unbelief revolts, and men challenge the supreme to break the silence and declare himself, how little do they realize what that challenge means? It means the withdrawal of the amnesty. It means the end of the reign of grace. It means the closing of the day of man and the dawning of the day of wrath. One day that voice, as the sound of many waters, will break the silence with a roar, and all voices in angry protest will be silenced, drowned out by His. In other words, with all the lawlessness and godlessness in this world today shouting and rebelling against God, one day all those voices are going to be silenced in an instant, drowned out by the voice of the Lord as the sound of many waters. Amen. Jeremiah 25.30 says the same thing. The Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He will roar mightily against His fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Next, verse 16, we're up to number 7. He had in His right hand seven stars. Now the mystery of the stars is explained in verse 20. These are the messengers who represent the seven churches. More likely, they're the pastors of these churches that Jesus is going to address. We see that Christ holds them in His hand, which means that He controls the church, its leaders. Jesus is truly Lord, not only of the churches, but the entire universe. Again, John Phillips writes in his commentary, The hand that holds the stars still bear the scars of Calvary's nails. He knows the searing pain of the hammer, nail and wood. It's not that He's careless, but that He is in control. And I would add that Jesus has you in his hand as well. Number 8, verse 16, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now for those of you who like to study technical things, the word for sword here is ramphia. This is a, a long and heavy sword mentioned five other times in the book of Revelation. This is a sword of devastating judgment. You know, you judge a blade by its sharpness and, and, and hardness and its cutting ability and its ability to retain that, that edge. Custom knives are made to perform specific functions. You know, we've had invented cutting tools now today that can cut at a microscopic level. Yet we also know that the Bible says it's the Word of God that's able to cut into the heart of man. We're told in Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now that word for sword in Hebrews is different than the word in Revelation. Hebrews 4.12 speaks of the Roman short sword, and that's not so much judgment as it speaks more of uncovering unbelief. It has the ability to cut like a laser at the microscopic level to pierce to the very core of our hearts. And that's what the Word of God does as we read it and apply it to our lives. It was Mark Twain who once said, Most people are bothered by those Scripture passages which they cannot understand. But for me, the passages in Scripture which trouble me the most are the ones in which I do understand. The Word of God can cut along the, the precise border that marks the soul and the spirit. 
No human instrument can even come close. Word of God, powerful, invincible. In fact, the Bible says that the Lord puts His Word even above His name. Ten times in Genesis, God spoke and galaxies were born. Darkness fled. Dry land rose from the waters. The seas were established at shores. Billions billions of life forms appeared all at once just from God's Word. But not only that, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, demons and disease and death all fled. See, whether the Word is replenishing the earth, redeeming the earth, the result is the same. It's glorious. It's, it's the Word of God. Then we see, finally, verse 16, number 9, His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This speaks of His, his glory and His brilliance, like a, a bright blue sky and nothing but the sun there. And you kind of take a look at it and go, man, this thing is, it is bright, high noon, bright as it could be. Just the brilliance and the glory of the Lord. Paul, in recounting his conversion to King Agrippa, said this in Acts 26, 13. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me brighter than the sun at noonday. So as John describes these nine attributes of Jesus, this portrait of the Lord it's just way too much from the handle. Look at verse 17. It says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I bet. Every one of us would do the same thing. That's always the response of, of seeing the Lord in his majesty and in his holiness and in his brilliance and in his glory. We see ourselves as we truly are in our sinfulness and our unholiness and our unworthiness. And we cry out as Isaiah did. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Or as Peter did when he encountered the Lord. Peter fell to the ground and said, depart from me. Or as Paul, when he encountered the Lord, he said, Lord, what would you have me to do as he fell to the ground? Always the result in seeing the exalted Christ. It should produce in our hearts a sense of awe and fear and respect and reverence because we serve a holy God. But notice what the Lord does in verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. I mean, that hand on John's shoulder must have brought an incredible amount of peace and comfort. Oh, yes, he's my God, but he's also my Savior, my Lord. He's my friend. This is the one who loves me. And Jesus lays his hand on John and says, do not be afraid. But then he gives him three reasons why he should not be afraid. Number one, he says, we don't need to fear life because he's the living one, the first and the last, the author and the finish of our faith. Number two, he says, we don't have to fear death because he died and conquered death. Verse 18, I'm the one who lives and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And number three, we don't have to fear eternity because he holds the keys of Hades and of death. So Jesus touches John and says, do not be afraid. In the same way as we close this morning, Jesus wants to touch your heart today and say, do not be afraid. With all that is going on in this world right now, Jesus says, do not fear. The Bible says, perfect love cast out all fear. See, the Lord wants us to see him as he is, not to freak us out, not to drive us away, but for us to draw near to him. Folks, we desperately need to have a clear vision of Jesus in the days in which we're living. I think sometimes we only see Him as a Savior on the cross or the shepherd caring for the lamb. 
But we need to see Him as a risen Lord. That He's alive and He has Holy Spirit power available to us. And through His Spirit, He desires you not only to be empowered by His Spirit, but to experience His Holy Spirit moving and working in our lives like never before. We need to see Jesus and realize that He's the one interceding for us. He's the one watching out for us. Our lives are in His hands and He's the one who promised never to leave me, never to forsake me. No matter what's happening in our world today, presently, we need this fresh vision of Jesus. And finally, in verse 19, Jesus tells John, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. There again is our outline for the whole book of Revelation. We're going to close with this. Jesus is in our midst. He sees and He hears and He knows our hearts. We need again to have a fresh attention to His voice and turn to see a fresh perspective of His person, to see His power and glory and majesty and be amazed. And realize who it is that is with me and who it is that is for me and who it is that I am living for. Listen, it is Jesus and, and it's Jesus who's offering you peace this morning. Do you know that peace? Our peace is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. And the closer you're walking with Him, the more peace you're going to have in your life. And the further you're away from Him, the, the more fear you're going to have in your life. If you're walking in fear this morning, draw close to the Lord. Again, perfect love casts out all fear. Jesus also said in verse 18 that He had the keys of hell and death. Listen, the keys of hell and death are not to lock people up. It's to set people free. Jesus is saying to the unbeliever, I can get you out of your damnable hellish situation if you let me. Jesus is saying, I can save you from hell eternally if you receive me. Jesus is saying, I desire to set you free. I have the keys to open that door. But you've got to ask. You see, the Lord can because He holds the keys to that which is imprisoning you. Let this one with the eyes of a warm fire set you free. And if you don't know Him this morning, I ask you to search your heart and see the wickedness in your heart and to know that Jesus is there and ready to touch you and forgive you and cleanse you because He paid the penalty of your sin upon that cross. So if you don't know Him this morning, I encourage you, don't do another thing except put your faith and trust in Him today. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your clear description, Jesus, of Yourself. And each picture there we can apply to our lives in some way, shape, or form, Lord. And we thank You, Lord, for Your love towards us. We thank You, Lord, that we can come to You and it's like sitting before a warm fire. We can find comfort and peace in the midst of the storms that are on the outside, Lord. Finally, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, they're not born again. Lord, the thought of judgment and you returning brings fear in them because they're not sure if they truly know you, if they're truly born again. Father, I pray if there's anyone here in that place that they would not leave here, that they would make a commitment to know you today, to have their sin forgiven. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, Christians are praying, is there anyone here that you don't have this relationship with Jesus Christ, but you want to know him? You want to have your sin forgiven. You want to be born again this morning. 
And to know that if Jesus were to come back, that you would go with them. That you would be set, uh, because of your sin, to a place of torment in hell. Jesus has the keys. and He's knocking on the door of your heart, but you've got to open the door and let him in. Is there anybody here this morning you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Anybody at all? You want to know that your sin's forgiven. You want to be born again today. Raise your hand. Father, we thank you that we are believers here this morning that can be excited about your coming, excited about opportunities that you can use us before we go home to be with you, Lord. Use us powerfully, we pray, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, take us out of this place this morning and bring divine opportunities, appointments to those that we can share the hope that lies within us, the hope of our relationship with you, our sin forgiven, eternity in heaven. So many good things, Lord, to look forward to. Bless these folks, I pray, Lord, as we go away. Uh, just give a great vacation Bible school. Help us to minister to these children in a way that even at a young age, they come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Bless our day. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and do one last song.